Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored and pleased to introduce to you two of our brilliant and experienced immigration law attorneys, Dana Delat and Korzad Mehta. So today's topic is the hot button issues in adjustment of status cases. Most of us as employers are aware that we process PERM slash labor certification or the I-140 petition after the PERM is approved uh, in PERM-related cases. And then after those two stages, we have the I-485 or the adjustment of status application. Now, most employers obviously tend not to be as involved with the third stage, which is the adjustment of status stage, because the employer is intricately involved with the PERM and I-140 stages. The reason we figured that we needed to discuss adjustment of status with, with all of you as whether you're in-house counsel or HR managers or business owners is because it's extremely important for you to determine how you can either keep this long-term employee working with your company and with you forever, or if there's a little bit of give and take with a healthy exchange of AC21 adjustment of status portability issues, how we can use these employees who have somewhere some other employers filed the permit I-140 for them and how you can continue to use these valuable resources for the company. The focus today also is on adjustment of status and not on the consular processing, which is done when the person is outside the United States. So for most of us, as we know, the adjustment of status is one of the two primary methods for an individual, for a national, to ultimately become a permanent resident in the United States, which yeah, the more colloquial word is the, as a green card holder, after the person has been sponsored and approved for a permanent immigrant visa classification based on an approved immigrant petition or I-140 petition. So, Korzad, what are the eligibility requirements for an adjustment of status? Well, Sheila, you alluded to one of them already when you talked about the main differences between adjustment of status and consular processing, which is applying for the immigrant visa at the consulate abroad. That is that when you're doing consular processing, you are abroad. And when you're doing adjustment of status, you are present inside the United States. So uh, that difference is actually one of the requirements of, uh, of um, adjustment of status, and that is that the individual be present in the United States. Now, being present is not enough. You have to be present and maintaining lawful non-immigrant status at the same time after having been inspected and admitted or paroled into the United States. Now, inspection is a term of art. It basically means that you've come through legal channels to come into the United States, presented yourself to a U.S. Customs and Border Protection officer. That person has inspected, as in evaluated, the uh, the documents that you presented to come into the United States, typically a visa. Uh, the other requirement, and we'll go into this in detail as we go through the talk today, but the other requirement is that you have to be admissible to the United States. Uh, uh, the uh, the uh, third requirement is that you be the beneficiary of an approved immigrant visa petition with an immediately available visa number. You can't apply for adjustment of status if your visa uh, category is backlogged. 
uh, and uh, four, that you meet all of the other eligibility criteria for the immigrant visa category that you're applying based on, be it an employment-based category, which is the crux and focus of what we're talking about today, or a family-based category, which is a discussion for another day. Wonderful. So that means like the education and the work experience, et cetera, whatever was listed on the underlying perm exactly right, uh, sure. labor certification. Wonderful. That, that really gives us a nice, broad overview of the eligibility criteria for adjustment of status. So let's move on to what are the benefits of applying for an adjustment of status versus consular processing, Dana? The main benefit, as we've already mentioned, is the fact that a person is going to be able to do this from within the U.S. Most people, most employees are going to want to file that case within the U.S., stay here, work, live their lives without having to depart and go to the consulate. People usually pick consular processing when there is some reason that they are unable to do an adjustment of status. The other benefits that come along with it are the highly prized ancillary benefits of the EAD, the Employment Authorization Document, and the Advanced Parole. And people look anxiously forward to the time that they can obtain those documents, both for themselves as the primary applicant, but also very often for their spouses, because the spouses also will file an I-45, an adjustment of status, usually you know, concurrently with the primary applicant, and they, they too will be able to get the employment authorization document and the advanced parole, um, and many of the spouses have been unable to work before that time. And finally, the, they also potentially get the benefit of AC21 portability, which from an employer's point of view can be both a good and bad thing uh, in terms of employee retention, um, and we will discuss more about that a little bit later. Great, great. I always say it depends on which side. Someone's benefit could be somebody else's loss. And hopefully, as I said, it's an equal give and take where you lose some, but you gain some from your healthy competition. People usually do think, maybe we should mention here, that you usually do think of AC21 as a way for people to change employers. But it also can be a promotion or some other type of move within one's original sponsoring company. So employers need to be aware of that. It might actually be an opportunity at the right time to move somebody who's who's good and qualified up the ladder. And not have to start the entire perm and I-140 all over again. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of people tend not to focus on that issue, but it's very, very important and can save a lot of time and money for you as an employer in not having to go through the entire process again. And help you retain your talent. Right, right. So they, they, they don't feel like, oh, my God, now I have to go to the competition to, to be able to enjoy the benefit of continuing my green card process. Terrific. Thank you very much, Dana. So, Korzad, if we can come back to you. I know over the years, particularly for people born in China and India, you know, the EB2 dates have been terribly retrogressed. For EB3, for all, pretty much every uh, national of every country, there's years and years and years of backlog. What happens, for example, where the priority date becomes, let's say, current, you file your 485, then the priority dates go backwards or retrogress, um, you know, and, and, and that is very likely to happen, let's say, before the 485 can get approved. What does this mean and what's the, what is the option for the employer? You're right, Sheila. Unfortunately, it is not only possible but probable with the amount of demand that uh, especially Indian and Chinese nationals have for permanent immigration to the United States in the EB2 category, uh, that there will be retrogression of the uh, of the priority dates for those categories, for those nationals, before 
a 485 that's filed, let's say, today or uh, tomorrow uh, is able to be processed to completion. And if they are retrogressed, then, of course, the I-485, rather, cannot be approved. Uh, one of the things I just mentioned when I spoke a few moments ago was that an immediately available visa number has to be available when you file for adjustment of status. And when and Exactly, Sheila. And it has to be available when they finally do the adjudication and mm -hmm. approve the green card. If it's not available, then what the USCIS has said they will do is process the case to as um, to to the point of completion, but for the actual immigrant visa being issued by the Department of State, they will request the number and keep it on hold and in abeyance, and then they will, when the numbers become current, do a sweep of their pending cases and approve those which are approvable. Uh, and and grant the green cards shortly thereafter. In the meantime, because that time for the number to become current again can be a few days, a few months, years even, uh, the primary beneficiary as well as the uh, dependents who concurrently filed the 485 with them can continue to renew their ancillary employment authorization document and advance parole uh, in contemplation of the of the process completing and their green cards being issued when the number becomes current again. Wonderful. So from the employer's point of view, having either the H-1B backup status or the EAD will protect the employer while the 485 is being processed. Correct. And, you know, we've had multiple teleconferences in the past where we've spoken with our valued clients, employees, and employers and discussed the merits of uh, maintaining lawful non-immigrant status throughout the process. We don't need to belabor that point today. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the EAD and advanced parole provide that uh, backup uh, work authorization and travel authorization while this process is going on. Well put. Well put. Thank you. And, you know, there are some circumstances under which an individual actually may not be able to apply for adjustment of status. They sometimes refer to as ineligibility criteria. And the an individual is deemed statutorily ineligible for filing the adjustment of status if the person, for example, was admitted to the United States as a crewman or if the person failed to maintain lawful status or work without authorization since the last entry or admission into the United States unless they are protected under 245K, what we call as Immigration and Nationality Act Section 245K, uh, which we'll explain below, which is less than 180 days, or are there are certain special immigrants uh, or immediate relatives. Uh, then there are exceptions even if they fell out of status. Uh, or if the, pers the person is ineligible, if the person was admitted to the United States in transit without a visa. Uh, you're going from country A to country B. The U.S. happens to be the port in the middle. You stop in at the airport. You actually never enter U.S. soil. Um, and but you you're not supposed to enter, and then you actually end up entering. That could be a potential problem to file the adjustment. Or if the person was admitted to the United States under the visa waiver program, unless the person qualifies for permanent uh, for permanent immigration as an immediate relative, ineligibility continues. For example, if the person maintains. S non-immigrant status, which are for certain snitch, what we call the snitch visas, the person is considered a terrorist, or the person is not in lawful status, or finally, if the person was employed without authorization or otherwise violated the terms of the non-immigrant visa in beyond the 180 days. So the only reason I'm ta ta talking about this is because as an employer, if you sort of if your antenna goes up and you hear of any of these circumstances, then it's possible. 
or very likely that your employee will not be eligible to actually be able to file the I-485 and obtain the employment authorization documents. So sort of corollary to the issue of maintenance of status, I'm going to have Dana explain what exactly, Dana, is maintenance of lawful non-immigrant status. Put simply, maintenance of lawful non-immigrant status, which which is actually going to be probably for most employers the most common uh, status-related problem that would prevent somebody from adjustment of, of status or, or create complications with that. I, I, I think for most of our employers, they aren't dealing with people working there who came in as crewmen or, or, or whatnot. For and the most part, Many it's of our a, clients don't hire snitches. So <laughs> it's very uncommon. And, and we're, we're and, not meaning just right. as a regular snitch. We're talking an S the legal. S legal snitch, right. No, and that's why I agree with Dana that the bulk of our discussion today will focus on and the maintenance, maintenance of, of, status. of status or unauthorized employment. Um, so put simply, maintenance of status is complying with the terms of whatever non-immigrant status that person has. So most commonly for our clients, that would be if a person is in H-1 status, they need to be working for that H-1 employer in the job that's described in the H-1 petition, not some other job, at that location where it's set out in the LCA. It's simply essentially doing whatever it is that you're supposed to do in that particular status and also not doing anything else that, it, that conflicts with that status. So it's not enough for a person who has an H-1 to just be working in that H-1 job. They also have to avoid, for example, unauthorized work in some other job. You just have to, again, comply with the terms of the status. And where there are breaks in that, uh, the government can deem that the person has failed to maintain that status. Um, and again, it's going to run into a problem with their adjustment unless it fits within an exception. The other common problem we see with that is people staying beyond their expiration dates, staying uh, after a denial, perhaps misunderstanding uh, the significance of a motion to reopen or an appeal or something and thinking they can just stay. Wonderful, wonderful. And so in a situation where a person, an employee, has failed to maintain status, Korzad, can the failure to maintain lawful non-immigrant status be corrected or cured in any way? Sure it can. You know, we'll talk in the in, in, for the next few minutes about uh, you know, the statutory provisions that permit the uh, status violation um, that that allow the status violation to be cured, but you know before we go into that, sometimes the easiest way to fix a status violation is to depart the United States and seek a readmission to the United States. Uh, the only problem with that is uh, that if the period of being out of status has been greater than 180 days, or if there's some other factor that happened while this unlawful stay happened, um, uh, it becomes is, is part of the facts and circumstances of the case, departure can be actually a bigger detriment than a benefit to clearing up the status violation because it can expose the uh, individual to bars from uh, readmission to the United States. And that's why the statute, uh, the statute contains these provisions to sa effectively save individuals from departing the United States and triggering bars and be able to fix their status violation within the United States if they fall within the parameters of the statute. Sure, sure. And there are actually three different statutory provisions which will uh, basically allow a person to cure the failure to maintain status without having to depart the United States. And the three are what we call the 245K, which I just briefly mentioned. Then you have the 
245C2, which I'm going to ask Dana to speak briefly about. And then there's 245I, uh, well, which we'll also talk about. But 245K, as I just had talked about a couple minutes ago, uh, allows a person who failed to maintain status for a period not to exceed 180 days at the time of filing the F-485 or adjustment of status um, to go ahead and file the I-485 and take advantage of the grace period provisions under 245K um, by allowing the person to basically obtain the I-485 approval. And uh, in the meanwhile, the USCIS issues, as Dana had earlier talked about, the EAD and the Advanced Parole, the Employment Authorization Document, the Advanced Parole. So Dana, what's the 245C2 cure provision? 245C2 is somewhat complicated, but it basically allows the USCIS to approve an I-485 even if a violation of status or unauthorized employment exceeded 180 days. There actually is no time limit on the 245C2, but it is a narrow exception. You have to show that the failure to maintain status is essentially not the fault of the applicant. And what's tricky there is that there are limits on who you can blame. You can't just say, for example, oh, my husband was supposed to file something for me. I delegated that authority and he didn't do it. It's not my fault. Because everybody as an adult is responsible for their own status. So the regulations limit this to action or inaction of another individual or organization who is essentially under the law responsible for doing a particular act. And the example that is most common is, let's say, for foreign students, there is supposed to be a designated school official. They have certain requirements. Only they can file certain paperwork and make certain notations in and entries in the uh, CVS system. If they mess something up, then that might not be regarded as being the individual's fault. That failure might be considered technical or not the fault of the applicant. And it's important to remember what you're talking about is is that the the failure of the of the DSO to do something resulted in the non-immigrant or, or the non-citizen rather losing status. Right. It all has to be directly connected, and you also have to consider um, how much time can you get forgiven uh, in that situation because perhaps that caused the problem, but you can't then just sit there for 10 years and later blame the DSO. There, there's all sort of reasonableness written into this. Or if what about if the person is, for example, in hospital for six months and couldn't right. obviously submit an extension or file status? Right, and that might be a, a, under the technical violation caused by the physical inability of the applicant to request it. But again, going back to time limitations, if you're in, a, in the hospital and you can't file something, that might be forgiven if you take some action reasonably quickly after getting out of the hospital, but not three, four years later. Even though we have gotten um, forgiveness under these provisions for really uh, very long periods of time in some cases, if you can track a whole series of problems, um, again, that are not the fault of the individual. it. But again, we do use this provision fairly often, particularly in our special projects department. These cases come with all sorts of fact patterns. And often we look to um, failures of employers to take certain actions, like, uh, for example, LCAs and things that, that are not under the control of the individual. Um, and sometimes we look at other lawyers who have failed to do something. Again, there's all sorts of different fact government mistakes, actually, that too. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it, it, it 
needs to be very detailed and account for all the time, but it is there in some very unfortunate Have you cases. seen successes where the USCIS has approved the case? Uh, right. We have we have quite a number of these and, and have made, if I can say it, rather a fine art of using this, this section to, again, show where the fault lies, that it's not with the applicant. Again, it's very often with, sometimes it is with other lawyers, unfortunately. Sometimes it's the government. Sometimes it's employers. Um, you know, any combination of things that, again, can often account for often years of time if you can outline all of that in your application and show why the government should grant this benefit and why that person is eligible for favorable discretionary treatment. Right, right. And you as all as employers that are listening to this discussion may be thinking, boy, why would I want to stick my neck out and do it? And maybe if you get some kind of protections, again, you may want to speak with your you know, company, corporate in-house lawyers or your contract lawyers to ensure that you are not exposing yourself or the company to huge risks because there's a huge benefit in admitting to some liability and fault, but also a disadvantage in case there's a possible lawsuit and the case isn't approved in the future. So again, we're not giving you a legal opinion on those issues, but we certainly want to meant, you know, put it out there. And then the third issue that we talked about besides the 245K and 245C2 that Dana just talked about, we have 245I which is a much older provision. It was either pre-April 30th, 1998, or pre-April 30th, 2001. Both are under the 245I clause, but basically it protects you where if you were um, out of status for much longer than the 180 days or you had fallen out of status, you would pay what they we then would call the penalty fee, which ended up being increased to over $1,000 and then um, over and above all the other regular adjustment of status fees, you complete an additional form known as the 485 Supplement A, admitting to the immigration violations and submit this. But 245I has certain physical presence requirements that you have to be in the United States on the day that the LIFE Act was passed, which was on December 21st of 2000. Uh, when Life Act was passed, and that you had started or filed some kind of green card before April 30th, 2001. And you don't have the physical presence requirement if your green card was started before April 30th, 1998. Uh, Dana is saying that's it's, not... that's. It's not April 1998. It's... Uh January 14th. January 14th. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I go, go back. And that's why I told you we have a brilliant team of lawyers who can work together and we hold each other's feet to the fire. But thank you. It was January 14th, 1998, or then the, which does not have the physical presence requirement. So that's fantastic. So, Korzad, let's come back to you. What exactly does inadmissibility mean? Because from an employer's point of view, if I am an employer and I'm going to be hiring this brilliant smart software engineer or this brilliant uh, researcher for my company, I want to be sure that I'm not wasting my time and money paying legal fees, even to the world's best law firm like the Murthy Law Firm, if the person is inadmissible. So help me out. Well, inadmissibility is what it kind of sounds like. It's a legal consequence which results in a bar to admission or entry to the United States due to specific grounds that apply to the intending immigrant or non-immigrant to the United States. These grounds, you know, speaking very broadly, are health-related grounds, uh, health, you know, people with tuberculosis, syphilis, active tuberculosis rather, uh, would, are not permitted to immigrate to the United States. They're inadmissible uh, until such time as that that health issue 
is cleared up or dealt with. Similarly, criminal-related grounds. Uh, individuals who've committed uh, or, or are convicted for certain crimes, if they fall under certain categories, uh, are inadmissible to the United States. Security and related grounds, terrorists. Terrorists are always going to have a very, very hard time getting a green card in the United States or even getting non-immigrant classification in the United States. Public charge. If it seems that an individual who's intending to immigrate to the United States is going to come here and become a burden on our uh, nation's uh, public assistance system, like um, means-tested public assistance programs, uh, they they will not be permitted permanent immigration to the United States. And that's not particularly likely with, again, our, of course. the employees of the employers that are listening because those They're people working. should be working and earning an income and the public charge... Um, Money levels are, are, are very low, so anybody working 125% full-time... 125 percent of the yeah. poverty line. So yeah, anybody working for us full-time is not going to have an issue. And that perfectly dovetails into the other, into, an, into the next um, uh, ground of inadmissibility, which likely doesn't apply in the employment context, which is labor certification. Uh, generally, individuals who have come to the pro- point where they can apply for an immigrant visa have been certified. Uh, for um, employment in the United States and that, they're at, uh, that their employment is in a shortage area. So labor certification should be dealt with. Immigration violations such as uh, unlawful presence uh, are also grounds of inadmissibility. Uh, insufficient immigration documents. Uh, if somebody is trying to come here permanently but has a temporary visa, they're not going to be admissible to the United States. And, you know, typically just rare uh, issues such as citizenship and ineligibility, previous removal or deportation, intention to practice polygamy or unlawfully vote or dodge your taxes. All of these can uh, bar an individual from getting uh, immigrant classification in the United States. So now I imagine that our uh, that our clients are out there thinking, well, this all sounds like something that would bar you from physically being able to come into the United States. And we're talking about adjustment of status here. And Korzad, you just said that to apply for adjustment of status, you already have to be in the United States. And yes, you're absolutely right. That is correct. Uh, but In the eyes of the law, when an individual is applying to go from a non-immigrant status to getting a green card through adjustment of status, the law looks at that person as somebody who is at a virtual border. They are virtually outside of the United States seeking to come into the United States permanently with their green card, even though they're physically in the United States. And that's why the the inadmissibility grounds apply. They use the term admission, being admitted as a permanent resident, because that's exactly what it means. Thank you very much for that clarification. It's very helpful. Well, And also, even though it is true that most of these things should be screened before the person is allowed into the U.S., typically what we see is that people will do things after they get here that will run them into mm. trouble. Most commonly, the criminal grounds. Someone might be have a perfectly fabulous, you know, clean record before they get here, but for some reason, they'd run into trouble once they come in. And the and common things we see sometimes are DUIs for the men and mm-hmm. sometimes shoplifting. Um, but you know what? It is what it is, and we there are exceptions. There's a petty theft exception. There's petty offense exception, and we do a lot. Unfortunately, we do quite a number of those at the Murthy Law Firm and really help people to get admitted and become permanent residents in spite of some of these ineligibility criteria. And as Korzat pointed out, you know whether it's TB or whether it's the criminal, as long as you can go over that hump and show that it's no longer active or you've taken the appropriate medication and that you are no longer a threat, to the society, then then you can be admitted um, as a permanent resident. Now, and, Dana, and I think I, the best thing employers can do there is to make sure that people have, you know, have their attorney to work with, 
far enough in advance to address such problems before it's kind of the last minute with a green card case. And particularly criminal things, people are reluctant to reveal that to their employers. So you have to be aware of that and set up a system that will you know, account for that. Yeah. And I think as most of you as employers probably won't deal with most of these issues that we just talked about directly, though it's very helpful for you to know what exists and what happens behind the scenes, because people are very embarrassed and sometimes ashamed, often ashamed of things that they've done that they wouldn't want their parents or their employers to be aware of. And so, you know, behind the scenes, we try to clean it up so that they can continue as valued employees to help you and your company succeed and continue to be profitable. So I know we often talk about, you know, the green card being a future job offer. Why would an employer or a company sponsor somebody if they're not an employee today of your company? So what are the circumstances? Why would an employer do it? And can it be done, Dana, where a company can file paperwork for an employee if the employee is not employed by the employer? Well, they can because green card cases are always future job offers. And as the reason why they would do it, I think the reasons are, are, are varied. Presumably, they're filing for someone that they truly intend to bring on board at some future point. And, but since we're talking about adjustment of status, I, what I see most commonly with this future job offer concept these days is that the person was actually working for the employer. The employer filed the perm while the person was working. Employer filed the I-140 while the person was still there. Person looked at the cutoff dates and thought that, okay, you know, my uh, it's going to be forever before I get a green card uh, through this job and I want to make some changes. And they maybe have switched to another employer. Um, but sometimes those people maintain good relationships with their prior employers. And then when the dates came current, they may have been able to discuss that, and the employer might have been willing to move forward and file the I-45. And that's perfectly fine as long as there really, really is a job offer when that's filed. I do think the employer needs to give that some real thought about whether they really would rehire this person. Um, while that isn't necessarily common, you know, Corzad here worked for the Murthy Law Firm, and now he's back. So it does happen, and I do see it in, in some of the cases where people um, again, are really willing to go back to those original sponsors. There was nothing that they really disliked. And, you know, again, especially if it was the dream job and the dream employer. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely my case. <laughs> right. So, okay. but anyway, I think mm. employers need to give that a, a lot of thought. And they also do need to realize what they're committing to, that there has to be a genuine job offer, have to intend to bring that person back. And they probably should internally discuss it with their lawyers and set a realistic time frame for that person to come back. Wonderful, wonderful. Yep. Very, very good points. Now, I know many of you have either had your employees leave at some point after the permanent I-140 approval, or you have hired an employee from who's, uh, where another employer had filed a permanent I-140, and now you're hiring this employee to work with your company based on the Employment Authorization Document, or EAD. And so what's the legal basis for that? Most of you may have heard of something called the AC21 AOS Portability. That is the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act. The short term, the acronym for that is AC21. And AOS, as you may know, is the Adjustment of Status, which is the acronym we use for Adjustment of Status or I-485 filing. The portability uh, applies where the I-140 petition was approved 
or, or we'll get into this gray area of approvable when filed and all of that, but that gets into a little more gray area. And the I-485 application has been filed and pending at least 180 days. And the third important criteria is that the new employment, and as Dana pointed out, could be with the same employer or a new employer, has to be within the same or similar job occupational classification. If all of those three criteria are satisfied, then the person could notify the USCIS, and we generally recommend notification because we do a lot of these cases, again, to protect the employee in case there is a revocation of the underlying I-140 by the prior green card sponsoring employer. And although USCIS has not yet, 11 years after the law was passed, provided regulations on this specific issue regarding AC21 AOS portability, many, many people believe that the same or similar occupational classification is at least somewhat tied to the U.S. Department of Labor's job classification listed on the labor certification slash perm application, which should also, at least on some levels, correspond to the job code listed on the I-140 immigrant petition for worker. Um, sometimes this analysis is straightforward, but sometimes it can be very complicated. And we have seen cases where actually the USCIS has said it may or may not correspond. Maybe you could have been a software engineer that's now a professor. And then they've come back and said, maybe not. So they've gone all over the place. Again, we don't have clear-cut regulations. So in the absence of regulations, we're getting into making the arguments on behalf of individuals and companies. And generally, so far, we've been very, very successful. Uh, we, have a lot of, we, we represent a lot of people in connection with AC21 cases, and, and, and we have a very high level of success with that. I mean, personally, what I usually see is that people don't go too far afield. They're looking for jobs that are based upon their professional qualifications. And unless they've gone back to school, you know, they, they sort of move just up the chain in their responsibilities, but within their core field of expertise. Very good point, yes. So, Korzad, if we could have you uh, explain briefly about what would the new employer's responsibilities be when an employer hires an individual who may be able to benefit from the AC21 Adjustment of Status Portability provisions. Well, Sheila, assuming that the new employer is offering permanent employment in a position which is same or similar to the one which the foreign national was initially permanently sponsored for for the immigrant visa classification, which we were just mentioning, the sole step that a new employer needs to do to support that uh, foreign national employee who's seeking AC21 so that they can work for that employer is provide an employment offer verification letter or a similar letter evidencing the duties and details and other pertinent salient details of the the job they're offering to the individual uh, to be to accompany the request for portability that the foreign national will submit to the USCIS saying that they have a job offer in a same or similar category and they can move forward with their green card with that new employer. Uh, it's very pain-free from the new employer's point of view. It is simply a very basic, you know, one-page letter verifying that the person has a certain job doing X, Y, and Abs Z. Absolutely it right. I mean, 90, 99 times out of 100, uh, our, our employers already have templates of employment verification letters and offer letters that we can utilize to go forward with the process. Uh, and like you said, it's painless. There is no requirement for the new employer, that AC21 employer, to do anything else. You don't have to file a PERM, don't have to do the pre-filing PERM recruitment, don't have to file an immigrant petition I-140. And you know, stemming from not having to have to do that, you don't have to worry about whether you have the ability to pay 
the uh, wage uh, that's being offered or the ability to pay that was offered by the previous employer. None of that falls on the new employer. Uh, and uh, the compliance requirements, like maintaining the PERM compliance file for five years after filing the uh, PERM, doesn't apply to a new employer. They never filed a PERM in the first place, so they don't have to worry about the compliance. Well, I'm sure it's very exciting and tempting then for a company to get uh, employees where another employer has uh, filed the PERM in the I-140, so that could be a, a win-win if, if for whatever reason it didn't last or work out with the earlier employer. Dana, are you dying right. to say something? No, I, it but that's really it. And as we started at the beginning, with, when we first started talking about AC21, as an employer, it can work for you or against you. It's a way to, to hire potentially some very, um, you know, some good talent, good workers that might have a case with, with, that was originally filed by someone else. But it also is, is something that employers need to think about as far as retention of employees. Absolutely. So I know we're always very sensitive to the issue of you taking valuable time in the middle of your day to participate in the Murthy Law Firm teleconference. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's usually we try to do it between 30 and 45 minutes. We're right on time. It's right under 40 minutes at this point. Uh, I do want to say I appreciate your participating. We understand as employers, you may think that the 45 doesn't directly imp imply to you because it's an application by the individual employee and the employee's family members. But you as an employer, as Dana and Korzad just explained, can take get the benefits of AC21 Adjustment of Status Portability. You can enjoy those benefits. You can certainly take advantage and understand a lot of these issues that individual employees may have had to deal with when interacting and interfacing with the lawyer to get the 485 approval. And ultimately, at the end of the day, many of you, whatever business we run, our valued employees are a critical component in the success of our lives and our businesses. So learning how we can keep them happy. And one important secret that may help you to attract and retain some of your best employees is to work with the best immigration law firm in the world, the Murthy Law Firm. And on behalf of Dana Delot, Korzad Mehta, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we are so thrilled and honored that you could participate today, learn and understand adjustment of status 485 issues in the employment-based context. And we hope we've shared some secrets and tips with you to retain your valued employees. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to participate and to hear us. And we look forward to continuing to help you and your company. Or if you're not yet a client, Come on over, join our side, and have the best team working for you and with you. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you.